Turn in your Bibles to Malachi chapter 1. If you haven't caught on to that yet, it's the last book of the Old Testament. I hope you have been reading with us this year through the Bible. If you have not, or if you have kind of fallen by the wayside on that, as tends to happen when you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, uh, I've, I've been guilty of that myself before. Uh, that's okay. On Thursday, we begin the New Testament. Thursday. So you can start with Matthew chapter 1 with us Thursday. You can go to fbcthompson.org and follow the tab to the year of the Bible. And it's got the reading plan. It's got all the information you need, links to these great videos that you can watch. Uh, and we're going to watch one of those together here in just a minute. But as we start thinking about Malachi and, and, and the way that Malachi opens, I got to thinking about how powerful those three words are. I love you. And how nerve-wracking it can be the first time you say, I love you to someone. Maybe some of you remember back in your younger days when you met your beloved and you had that first time that you said to them, I love you. It's a bit of a risk, isn't it? I mean, certainly they could respond back with, I love you too. But if the feeling isn't mutually shared the answer could be not good. And sometimes people answer that in the most soul-crushing way possible. So I just want to share with you a few terrible, terrible responses that some people have heard when they said, I love you to someone for the first time. These are truly the stuff of nightmares. So somebody says, I, you, you say to somebody, I love you. And their response is, I love spending time with you. <laughs> or they say, yeah, you're not too bad yourself. Or, I love you too, like a friend. Oh, that's not, not good. You say, I love you to someone, and they respond with, that's sweet. Or they say, thank you. Or even worse, thank you. I love you. I know how you feel. I love someone too. Oh, Ugh, that's just not, not good. Well, Malachi opens with a similar situation. God has expressed His love for Israel. That He has, has loved them, He has always loved them, He always will love them, but Israel's response is a suspicious, Oh yeah? How so? How have you loved us? Now, before we dive in a little bit more to Malachi, I want us to stop and watch this video. It is from the Bible Project. It's one of the amazing videos they do for every book of the Bible. And it can help us to understand the structure and central message of Malachi because Malachi is written in sort of a different sort of way. And it really is the perfect conclusion to the Old Testament. It summarizes this rocky relationship that God has had with Israel but it also points us ahead to the fullest expression of God's love, not just for Israel, but for all people. So let's watch this video together, and then we'll dive into Malachi. So Malachi challenged Israel to, first of all, remember. Remember, and then secondly, respond to God's amazing love for them. And that message is very much relevant to us today. So the first thing that we learn from Malachi is that we need to remember God's love. Remember God's love for you. Look with me at Malachi 1, verses 1 through 5. 
An oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Now look with me back up there at verse 2 where God says, I have loved you. Now the, the Hebrew form of that verb that the NIV translates, I have loved you, also carries with it the force of, and I still do. So when God says here, I have loved you, it's not the sort of, well, I used to love you, but now I'm just fed up with you, like we might feel after the way that Israel's treated God. We might feel that way about somebody. But instead, what this means is God is saying, I have loved you, I still love you, and I always will love you. God expressed His love for Israel multiple times throughout the Old Testament. Hosea 11.1 is a beautiful example when he said, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. He talks about how he fed Israel, how he held them by the hand and taught them to walk as a, as a dad would maybe teach his toddler to walk, how God healed them with the cords of human kindness. God loved Israel. But after the return from exile didn't lead to immediate wonderfulness and, and all that the prophets had promised and all that they had longed for, the people began to doubt God's love. They began to forget about God's goodness, about all the ways that He had demonstrated His love for Israel. And so it's as if they were saying, God, You say You love us, but how have You proved it? Now, how the Lord responds to this here in Malachi is interesting. I mean, God could have given them quite a litany. He could have talked about the exodus and the plagues and parting the Red Sea. He could have talked about giving them the Ten Commandments and leading them through the wilderness with manna. He could have talked about how He gave them the promised land and defeated all of their enemies and gave them great kings like David and Solomon and Hezekiah and how He brought them back from exile in Babylon. And there are places in the Old Testament to do this. Read Psalms 104 through 107. Or look at Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7. Or the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11. Or read Isaiah 63 for examples where God gives these litanies. In fact, Isaiah 63 begins with this verse. Or, or this part of this, this, uh, this litany begins with, I will tell you of the kindness of the Lord, the deeds for which He is to be praised, according to all the Lord has done for us. Yes, the many Good things He has done for Israel according to His compassion and many kindnesses. But God doesn't do that here in Malachi. Rather, God chooses to remind them of the greatest act of compassion. The ultimate act of kindness upon which all the others were based. That He chose them out of all the nations of the world. And he says, you know, I could have chosen Esau. Remember, Esau was Jacob's brother. Israel was descended from Jacob. And Esau was the firstborn. 
So Esau actually had the legal right to that blessing and that promise from Abraham. When God promised Abraham to bless all the world through him, Esau was Isaac's first son, Abraham's grandson. He's the one who deserved it. He's the one who had that legal right, but God didn't choose Esau. God chose the younger brother, Jacob, the one who had no legal standing, the one who didn't deserve it. It was an ultimate demonstration of grace. God chose the one who didn't deserve this blessing, and He gave it to him. Jacob, not Esau, was God's choice to bring His blessing to the world. Now, does this mean that God doesn't love other people? Does God really hate one group while He loves another? I mean, as beautiful as this sentiment is in verse 2, verse 3 begins sort of a disturbing part of this. And it's, I think, some verses that are probably some of the most misunderstood and confusing in the Bible. This kind of comparative language is used in other places in the Bible. For example, Jesus in Luke 14, 26 said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, of course, Jesus doesn't want us to hate anyone, does he? Much less our family or our own lives. This is an example of hyperbole, of exaggeration to make a point. Our love for our family, our love even for our own lives, should be like hatred in comparison to our love for Jesus Christ. That's the point that Jesus is making. And so here in Malachi, God is saying that He loved Israel and chose Israel so much that by comparison, it's as if He hated Esau and by extension, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. And the Edomites were one of Israel's longest-running enemy nations. They hated Israel. They thwarted Israel. When Israel was overrun or captured, they rejoiced. And so you can read Obadiah to see just how much Esau deserved the wrath of God. But all of this is meant to illustrate for the Israelites God's enduring love for them. That from the beginning, God chose them, loved them, defended them, delivered them. That is what they had forgotten. That is what they needed to remember. Winston Churchill was honoring members of the Royal Air Force who had guarded England during World War II. And recounting their brave service, he declared, Never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to so few. It's a great line. And certainly these brave men and women from the Allied forces who sacrificed so much on the battlefields of Europe, certainly they deserve to be remembered. But there is one whose selfless sacrifice resulted in even greater benefits for humanity. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, became man. And though sinless, He died a sinner's death on the cross, shedding His precious blood to pay for the sins of the entire world. And in so doing, He guaranteed our eternal freedom from the penalty, power, and someday even the presence of sin. The Apostle Paul wrote, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. And though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. And you heard in our New Testament reading earlier how God showed His love among us 
He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. So we can say of Jesus, never in the history of mankind have so many owed so much to one man. Jesus demonstrated the true scope of God's love for us when He paid the greatest sacrifice. Lord, help us to remember that. Lord, help us to remember that He loves us in spite of who we are, because of who He is, because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We can know that God always loves us. He says, I have loved you, I do love you, and I always will love you. And that means you and me and the most vile person you could ever think of, no one is beyond the reach of God's unmerited love. And doesn't a love like that demand a response? How do we respond? Well, that's the second thing Malachi tells us, is how we respond to God's love for us. If God demonstrated His love for us by His actions, not just His words, then shouldn't we show God our love by our actions, not just the things we say? The prophets often confronted Israel for just paying lip service to God. They would say they love God. They would come to the temple. They would bring their sacrifices. They would observe the sacred feast days all while they were worshiping false gods and divorcing their wives to marry pagan women, all while they mistreated the poor and the powerless. And God was sick of their hypocrisy. Their lips said, I love you, but their lives said, I only love myself. So how, if we truly love God, how can we demonstrate for Him that love? Well, Malachi gives us three ways we can respond to God's love. The first is in verse 6, and that's to honor God's name. He says, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? So the people didn't understand how they ever showed contempt for God's name. I mean, after all, they built him a temple, didn't they? They bring him offerings, don't they? See, they, they weren't any different here on this side of the exile than the ancestors were before the exile. In Isaiah 29, God said, These people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Nothing really has changed. God here refers to Israel as His Son. God often referred to Israel as His Son. When God told Moses to confront Pharaoh to release His people, God said, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, which makes it all the more poetic justice, I guess, when the last plague claims the firstborn sons of Egypt. Because Egypt was holding ransom the firstborn son of God. And once Moses gets to Israel, once he gets them to Mount Sinai, notice what God says about how children, how sons and daughters are to treat their mothers and fathers. One of the Ten Commandments says, Honor your father and your mother so that it may live long, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. So children are to honor their parents so they can live long in the land that God had given them. Is it any wonder then? That when Israel repeatedly failed to honor their father, he stripped the land away from them. He sent them into exile. 
Sons must honor their fathers. Servants must obey their masters. Yet Israel still failed to honor and obey the Lord. Even God's priests, those who were supposed to be the go-between God and His people, even they showed contempt for God's name. Is it any wonder the people had broken faith with God? Turn with me maybe one page in your Bible to chapter 2. Listen to verses 10 through 16. Have not we all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he bring offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It is because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. They had broken faith. They had dishonored God's name. But here we see in the negative confrontation a positive for us. Two ways that we can honor God's name. The first way we can honor God's name is there in verse 10. And that's by being faithful to one another. They had been unfaithful to each other. They had broken covenant, broken faith with each other. On, earth, on later, we see that they had broken faith, broken the covenant with their wives. They couldn't be faithful with their wives. They couldn't be faithful with one another. In Romans 12, Paul commands Christians to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another. Above yourselves. And time and again, Jesus and Paul give us examples of how to do that. He, they tell us that we're to forgive each other. We're to be patient with each other. We're to believe the best about each other. We are to forgive debts and give generously, meeting the needs of one another. We're to pray for each other. We're not to gossip about each other, but only say what is helpful for building each other up. Jesus said the watching world would know we belong to Him by how we treat and love one another. Churches that are fussing and fighting all the time need to understand, and this, our church thankfully doesn't do this, but churches that do this need to understand that winning family squabbles will not win a lost world. And this world more than ever needs to see from us how to love and treat other people, especially those with whom we disagree especially those who are different from us. With all this talk about racism in our country today, we need to daily remind people what verse 10 says. Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us all? We honor God when we're faithful to each other. But secondly, obviously, we have to be faithful to God. 
And that's what the rest here of, of chapter 2 is, is talking about. It wasn't just that the Jewish men were marrying idol worshippers and then worshipping those idols. They were divorcing their wives in order to do it. And, and God calls this detestable. He says it's an act of desecration. But they do this. They worship false gods. They break their faithfulness with one another. And then they have the gall to come into the temple and to weep and wail at the altar to shed these alligator tears because God won't hear their prayers. And God says, why would I hear your prayers and accept your offerings when you're living a life of sin without remorse and without repentance? The people of Israel broke faith with God. They failed to keep their covenant with Him. But is that any surprise? They can't even keep their covenant with their wives, much less with their God. To honor God's name, we must be faithful to one another, especially our spouses, our families, and we must be faithful to God. Because if we claim the name of Jesus, then we need to put forth the effort to live up to that name. That's how we honor the name of God. Secondly, one way we can honor God's name, another way that we can respond to God's love, is to give God our best. We give God our best. Turn back to chapter 1, look at verse 7. I'm just going to read the rest of this chapter. So they've asked, how do we show contempt for your name? And God says, you place defiled food on my altar. But you ask, well, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now imploring God to be gracious to us with such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty. And I will accept no offering from your hands. My name will be great among the nations, from the rising to the setting of the sun. In every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to my name, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. But you profane it by saying of the Lord's table, it is defiled and of its food, it is contemptible. And you say, what a burden. And you sniff at it contemptuously, says the Lord Almighty. When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Notice how many times in here he talks about his name. That's why the first way we respond to God's love is we honor his name. By being faithful to him and to each other, we respond to God's love by giving our best. The priests and the people they were leading had disrespected God by what they brought to him in worship. Their offerings and their tithes, they brought grain offerings and animal sacrifices that were ceremonially unclean. They were blemished, they were diseased, they were, they were polluted. They gave them knowing full well these were unacceptable. God's law was clear. When they bring an offering, it's to be the best of the best. Unblemished lambs. 
Now, why was this such a big deal? Why was God so particular about whether a lamb had a broken leg or not, or had some skin disease, or whether it you know, had a third eye on its head or something like that? Why did God care about that if the animal was going to be sacrificed and killed and burned on the altar? Well, two reasons. The first is obviously because we should give our best to the ones we love, right? Now, if you're going to give a, a birthday gift to somebody that you love and care about, you're not going to go just to a, a flea market and get some bummed up, dusty old, broken thing and wrap it up and give it to them, are you? If you do, you're not getting any invitations to my birthday parties. I'm just telling you that right now. <laughs> now, we want to give people nice things. We want to give them the best that we can give them because we love them. But the second reason, the most important reason, is because these lambs that they were sacrificing were meant to point them to the perfect, ultimate, sinless sacrifice, and that is Jesus Christ, who has no blemish. And so God challenged them, would you present your governor with these gifts? Of course they wouldn't. Yet they think it's okay to give them to their creator. And not only that, but look over in Malachi chapter 3. Turn back another page again. Malachi chapter 3, God charged them. Not only were they bringing defective offerings, but they were robbing God of the tithe. Look at verse uh, 8. Will a man rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob you? And tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you're robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land. They were bringing unclean animals and at the same time withholding the first fruits of their income. Now, is that any way to respond to God's great love? Is that any way to thank God for the indescribable gift of His Son, for His forgiveness and grace, for eternal life? How can we expect God to hear our prayers and accept our worship when we offer such deplorable leftover scraps of ourselves? Whether it's our time, our energy, our heart, or our money. We cannot expect God's blessings when our lives are filled with sin, and we cannot expect God's power when we won't give Him the time in prayer. God deserves our best, and we should strive always to give God the best of ourselves, not the leftovers. To give back to God out of the abundance of His generosity to us. To give cheerfully out of grateful hearts. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And this is so similar to what we just read in Malachi 3. It had to be in Paul's mind as he wrote this. He says in verse 8, And God, I'm sorry, in verse 7, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give. Not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves what? A cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, He has scattered abroad His gifts to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness." You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of God's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. 
because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. God promised Israel in Malachi 3 that if they would faithfully give to Him their best, He would pour out so many blessings, they wouldn't have room for it. He would ensure good harvests. The nations would call them blessed. And so here Paul assures us that when we give cheerfully and gratefully, not just a tithe, but as Christians, as recipients of the fullness of God's grace, we give sacrificially above and beyond that. God will supply our needs. He will bless us abundantly. We will abound in every good work and be enriched in every way. And others will see and will come to know and praise Jesus Christ. What if we really took this chapter to heart and lived it? Think of what kind of church we could be. How much joy and blessing we would enjoy. How powerfully we would experience God working in and through us. Imagine the difference that we could make to our community. Consider God's indescribable gift, His unsurpassing love for you, and respond by giving God your best. And finally, we can respond to God's love by worshiping Him with joy. In Malachi chapter 1, in the midst of all of the talk about the sacrifices in verse 13, the people are saying, What a burden! What a burden! They're sniffing at God's table at His altar, contemptuously. See, it wasn't just what they did. It wasn't just what they brought in worship. It was how they did it. Those sinful actions were only expressing the wicked attitude in their heart toward worship. It had become burdensome. They treated worship with contempt. Oh, no. It's another Sunday. You've got to get up and go to church. I'd much rather sleep in, read the paper on the porch, drink some coffee. But I guess we've got to go to church. That was their attitude. In Amos 5.23, God tells Israel, Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. And here in Malachi, he says that he would rather shut the doors of the church than see his people treat worship as a burden. He would rather us be silent than sing with anything less than true joy and love in our hearts. Y'all, I get it. I understand how routine Sundays can become. Matt and Ben and I, we understand that as well as anybody. And, and, and I've been there. I know what it's like. You come, you sit in the same pew by the same people. You know, you, you, these seats aren't assigned. You can move around. I'm just... We sit in the same pew. We hear the same people get up to say sort of similar things. We sing the same songs. You know, we have that repertoire of songs we like to sing. And heaven forbid if Matt tried to teach us a new one. And then we leave to come back and do it again the next week. And as much as we strive to make each Sunday unique and fresh and, and, and we pray for it throughout the week, I, I get it. It takes intentionality to worship with eyes and ears open, with hearts ready to receive a word from God and to give our love and gratitude to God. Worship is something that we need to be praying for all week long in preparation. And I urge you to pray all week in preparation 
for corporate worship. I hope you spend time daily in public worship because there's no greater privilege we enjoy than to gather together as God's people to worship and pray and give and listen to our triune God. No greater privilege. As we remember God's amazing love for us, I believe we won't be able to do anything less than respond in joy-filled worship. If your worship has gone stale and same old, same old, then you need to get spend some time at the foot of the cross gazing into the face of your loving Savior. You need to spend some time at the empty tomb marveling at the resurrection power of Almighty God. You need to spend some time gazing into heaven. Maybe tomorrow during this eclipse as you're gazing into heaven, hopefully with proper eyewear and, and sunscreen, as you're gazing into heaven... My prayer for you is that you would gaze with anticipation and hope in your heart for the return of Jesus Christ. That will revitalize your worship. That will fill you with joy. As the Bible Project video mentioned, the exile did nothing to change Israel's hard heart. They had forgotten God's love. They needed a scroll of remembrance. That's what this book is. This is our scroll of remembrance. It's a story that points us to the past, to remember who God is and what God has done for us, to inspire us to faithfully live for God in the present and to infuse us with hope for eternal life tomorrow. That's what this book is. That's why we spend so much time in it. Let me end with Malachi chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, or else I will come and strike the land with a curse. Today, we finish the Old Testament. We look back over the law of Moses and the prophets. But every story in the Old Testament also points us forward to the day of the Lord. The day that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, comes. The one who alone has the power to replace our hard hearts with hearts of flesh. It is only by knowing the love of Jesus Christ that we can find abundant and eternal life. And then we can respond with faithful, obedient, joyful lives to the glory of God. Do you know this morning the love of God for you? Do you understand what Jesus Christ endured and suffered? How He bled and died for you? God loves you more than you know. He sings, according to Zechariah, He sings of His love for you. He has loved you. He does love you. He always will love you. How will you respond today to God's love? Will you come and give your life to Jesus Christ? Will you follow Him in believer's baptism? Will you not with this church family? Will you come and say, God, forgive me for not honoring your name as I should. I've been unfaithful to you. I've been unfaithful to others. God, would you forgive me for not giving you of my best? God, will you forgive me for treating worship as a burden instead of a joy? You respond as God has spoken to you today as we stand and sing. And we sing a great song to prepare us for next Sunday. We sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel.